Robin, would you turn the top two lights up a little bit more? Not all the way, but a little bit more. We're just a little less than that last one. Yeah, that's good. Thanks. Welcome back, everyone. I know some people couldn't, uh, weren't able to be here last week, so if you didn't get an email in any case, whether you were here last week or not, uh, sign your name or print your name rather and print neatly your email address and I'll make sure you get the emails that you missed including the links to the guided meditation and talk from last week and also the um, scanned chapter on appreciative joy from Sharon Salzberg's book which is a useful reading to do for the course and I'll send out some other readings with this email but I want to make sure I get everybody's email address first. And before I go on to talk a little bit tonight uh, about the sort of good friends of mudita, the mind states that are associated with appreciative joy, just want to check in and see if anybody has any questions about the formal gratitude reflection or mudita meditation practice. So we'll take some time just to get clear. And of course... With all of the, uh, with practice, meditation practice generally, and, and maybe even more so with the Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes, there's a lot of room. It's very appropriate to be creative because we're, the images and the phrases aren't uh, uh, important in and of themselves. It's really more about what doors they're opening in the mind, what windows and doors are opening up and allowing the mind to begin to recognize something that's beautiful, alive, immeasurable. And so we're just using the person and the phrases to access something or to remember something. So any thoughts or questions about the meditation practices we just did or that you did this last week that you want to share with the group or questions? Yeah. Okay. And the nice thing <coughs> with this practice is we're, we're kind of doing foundational work. So we're not really at the level of deciding right now what we're going to do, but we're, we're doing more foundational work where we're bringing our heart into alignment with something that we find very trustworthy, like wishing well, caring, like in terms of somebody suffering, caring about them, or if they're having some success, really connecting with that and wishing well about that success, that it continue and increase and never end. So we're, we're aligning the heart, mind with the world in a very trustworthy way. And then the actual actions that will come out of that will be useful. Now, one thing that might be coming up to look at is that might be out of balance isn't so much what we're feeling toward the other person, but maybe... We have a sensitivity toward others that we don't have toward ourselves. 
like we recognize the suffering in another, but because we're not recognizing a suffering, difficulty, pain in our own life, that's what's out of balance. It's not so much that our sensitivity and the movement of the heart around somebody else's suffering is off, but it's out of balance because for some reason, some you know, habit or conditioned tendency of our mind, we don't trust or we don't feel it's significant, the pain that we're experiencing. So you might just see if that's what's the missing piece that would bring the practice more into balance. Same with the... That's why we do the gratitude practice first. It's like we're, we're taking a lot of time. You know, here it is a class on mudita, but we're taking a lot of time to appreciate the goodness in our lives. And, you know, we start to feel, maybe you notice that wonderful, abundant feeling after we do that for 20 minutes, we can start to feel quite alive, like there's just a lot of wealth, inner wealth. You know, and then it gets easy to happily appreciate the joy and the success of others. Yeah, other thoughts? Yeah, Paul. Everybody hear what Paul said? So here's the thing. I mean, on the one hand, the answer is probably doesn't matter. But on the other hand, the reason why there is a diversity of instruction generally is that we need to see what we're not seeing. And so when we take up a practice of mudita and the mind starts to resist it in a seemingly wise way, well, you know, it's just the same as compassion and loving kindness. But... It, that attitude might be a defense. Like the mind might be resisting mudita because there's some conceit that we're not seeing. And the idea, well, why not do appreciative joy? Do you know? What's, what's in the way? Like, why does it seem more narrow? Is it actually more narrow? Like, I'll give you an example tonight. I was doing it. And this teacher at Spirit Rock kept coming to my mind, Eugene, Eugene Cash. Some of you know him. Evidently had a really bad bike accident on Saturday and uh, has some brain injuries and, uh, and other, you know, many broken ribs and I think maybe the collarbone. I forget all the difficulties he's in right now. So in a bad place. Um, and, uh, you know, so that he'd, he'd arise in my mind and go, wait a minute, doing mudita practice, you know, not compassion practice. You know, and after a couple of times he came up, I said, okay, I'll do, I can do this. You know, it's like, and so, and it really worked. It's like, I mean, here's somebody who is deeply loved by a lot of people and he's loved and appreciated by a lot of people 
that have a lot of uh, wisdom and a lot of uh, power to their love and their concern. And I can really appreciate that. And I can wish that all of that wonderful, powerful support, that it continue, that it increase, that it never ends. So even when somebody is in a difficult place, we should be able to see something beautiful to appreciate. And that's a real art. And and so what we're doing is we're training the mind to be all-encompassing. No closed doors, nothing, uh, no situation that the mind uh, can't find a way to expand, to be sort of to fill the space of the universe, basically. And so that's that's really the purpose for the diversity of the instructions. Isn't that you need to do that? That in doing things from different points of view, we tend to illuminate where doors are closed, windows are shut, you know, basically habits of the mind that are defending some kind of conceit or narrowness. And we have to, we need something active to illuminate what we're not yet seeing in the mind because otherwise it remains unseen. Yeah, Robin. I want to say something about what you were saying. Yeah. Um, is pretty hard for me, but I know I, what I'm learning or what I was learning tonight is who is easy? You know, who, who can I really feel happiness for? And that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Just the lay of the land, like how the mind is conditioned to be open here, but shut down over here. Absolutely, yeah. I think that's just an, another way, a more easy way to understand, I think, than what I was trying to say. Anything else about the practice? Yeah, Eva. Eva. Might need to be a little louder. Yeah, so that's the real edge. I mean, there are problems. Uh, the mind can create problems as soon as it leaves the sort of essential practice, which is, I care about your happiness and I wish that it continue and that it increase and it never end. But we're not in any way demanding that the world be a different place than it is. We're simply recognizing that right now in this moment, I really care about your happiness and your success and wish for it to continue and increase and never end. So this is the amazing thing is that the heart can expand fully like you described, become very beautiful in this wishing well, but it in no way is uh, 
demanding the world to be other than what it is. So you, you and I, we know that the conditions for this person are going to change, probably, you know, sooner or later. And that they're going to cycle through difficult times. Same with us. But it doesn't take away from the heart's capacity to appreciate and to wish well. And that's why, that's what's so beautiful about these uh, four emotions is that they're unbounded and in a way they, they tend towards the unconditioned, meaning the unboundedness of them doesn't depend on the world being a particular way. Initially, it seems that way. That's why we begin with the easy person because the conditions make it easier to feel, like Robin was saying, now some people, maybe just one person or maybe just a few people, I can really have that unconditioned well-wishing. May your happiness continue. May it increase. May it never end. Everybody else, I'm a little envious. I'm a little competitive, you know, or whatever. But the more we recognize that expanded state, that expanded emotional state, the more we realize that it's unconditioned. Even though we use certain conditions, like thinking about this person, the actual feeling of wishing well is unconditioned. And that's what we want to realize. So we're using the technique to realize an unconditioned state, the heart unbounded, like the sensitivity and responsivity to suffering that's unbounded, not affected by fear. The fear like of being contaminated by other people's suffering. Same with joy, like a heart that's not contaminated by envy or by feeling like there's not enough. But just like wishing well that the joy, whatever joy there is, that it continue, that it expand, that it never end. So when we start to have expectations... It means that we're in the world of control again. Like, like we have, we have to sort of negotiate or manage the, these limited resources. And then we're back in this world of limitations and scarcity, which is a bit, that's a self-centered world. We're living from the point of view of self. We're very much identified with our circumstances. Okay, I'm already 53, so how much fun can I have being in my 50s? You know, or, you know, whatever you might think about your life or about somebody else's life. Um, but I had another person come to mind who's uh, in the Mudita practice tonight. And this person is also ha- has some really challenging circumstances. And so this is why it's useful to bring to mind when you're, you're feeling some momentum in your Mudita practice, bring to mind people in challenging circumstances, like having a life you would not want to have. And see if you can appreciate aspects of their life that are beautiful, that are good. And really touch that, that beautifully expanded state of mind, of heart, as you're remembering that person. Because what a gift that is. Because normally our way, the way we relate to people who have difficult circumstances is there's a kind of disease mentality that whatever limitations they have in their life, like we could catch it if we if we're too open, too close to them. So we want to actually see that nobody's particular conditions, nobody's particular life situation limits their happiness. So then when we relate to the different people in our life, even people in poverty, people in despicable, terrible situations, 
we're not somehow projecting onto them that they're doomed. What a heavy trip that would be if everybody thought we're doomed. I mean, this is kind of what we do with people like, you know, the way our news works, people in Somalia, you know, they're just doomed. There's no functioning government. There's not enough food. There seems no way out. Or the whole Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you know. And just ha- it's so easy to kind of fall into this place of helplessness. But we know that people in really terrible, difficult situations, are, it's possible for them to realize amazing states of freedom. Who's that uh, Jewish young Jewish girl that wrote the diary in... Not Anne Frank, but the one, uh, uh, Ellie... Uh, no, no, no. It begins with an H. She was... Anybody remember? Oh, anyway, there's a diary of a young Jewish woman. Um, I don't know if she was from Belgium. Anyway, and uh, it seemed like she became holy in the process of, you know, before being killed in the, in the concentration camp and was able to completely show up uh, from they found her diary sort of hidden in one of the concentration camps later, you know, behind some of the boards. And just these ecstatic entries of meeting the suffering um, fully and finding profoundly expanded, liberated states of mind. I'll try to track down and, and send the link out. Hedy yeah, Hetty. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember her last name? Yeah. Anyway, it's it's out there. It's kind of been it's made the rounds. So, and there's some books about her journals. So we know this, and there are many examples. That's just one example that people that the sort of beauty, you know, whether you want to call it the beauty of humanity or just the beauty of the essential heart or mind, isn't defined by the particular circumstances, conditions that somebody is living in. Yeah, Jana. I was just going to say that. Especially last week, but also this week, I had the same experience that Paul did, where I felt like um, the practice of mudita was a little bit more concentrated because I was having a hard time finding, thinking of people I was close to that were really happy in their life, that they were really happy, not wanting, really mm-hmm. joyful about their life circumstances. And that actually sort of opened my heart a little bit, like, oh, anytime I come across someone who is happy, that's a great thing. And mm-hmm. I should be hoping that that happiness will increase. So, you know, <laughs> maybe it's sort of a glass half empty perspective. Um, it did sort of yeah, yeah, make yeah. me happy for people who have happiness. Yeah, like the fragility of happiness. Yeah. Like, uh, what really one of the main themes for my practice tonight, uh, starting at seven, because I, I was here for the first half an hour, I saw Wendy walking around the room, along the room, and she just looked happy. You know, I just she was holding her blanket. I think I just had the sense, you know, I'm just it's projection, but maybe there's some truth to it. You know, that she was really happy to have the time to be here tonight, to be with the group and to practice, and it just. That image, you know, is very simple. I know she's busy and I know, you know, she's got a crazy life like a lot of us do, doing more than we can handle and things like that. But, uh, but it was really easy for me to, cause it, cause it felt authentic what I saw. Like I really trusted what I saw in that moment. And just that, and then there were all kinds of little rifts. Like I, I remembered, 
I don't know if you people know Wendy. Wendy has a daughter who had her bat mitzvah this summer. She's a beautiful young woman, this uh, Izzy, her daughter. And so I remember, like, there's got to be some good feeling that Wendy has about her daughter, you know? So I, and then I thought about Ned, her husband, who's such a nice guy, that some of the time she's got to really be happy with her partner, you know? And then it's just kind of, and she lives in this neighborhood, you know, and it's such a nice neighborhood. And it's like, I could remember all of those things about Wendy. And so this is part of the skill is like being able to take apart an ordinary person's life and find things to appreciate. Like they're really people, all of us who are touching happiness all the time. It's not a scarce thing, but it doesn't make the news. <laughs> You know, what we remember and what we talk about with each other is the fact that my knee hurts or, you know, that that little mini bone fracture in that side of my foot. It hasn't gone away yet. You know, my throat's a little rough and, you know, and all these things. And this is what gets our attention. This is what we talk about together. So we have to retrain what we're sensitive to to kind of pick up on these other things. Yeah, Edwin and then Julie. Donald Trump. Or even an image, like bound to have to have yeah. uphold an image. Yeah. Whereas also like the people who are facing intense difficulties and so forth, and when you see them happy, and uh, it's like to me it's awe inspiring. You know that you know there's like a spiritual presence there that's really wow. Yeah. Yeah. Does what's that author um, and doctor's name? Rachel Neman. Uh, Raymond, yeah. She has that book, I think, called Grandfather's Blessings or something like that. And, and there's this one story. It's a very simple book, but, but also very beautiful. And one of the things that really struck me in that book, she says, just working with cancer patients for so many years, that uh, this is like one of those blessings, you know, in a difficult situation, obviously. And she said something like, they had, uh, they weren't willing to live in an inauthentic way anymore. I mean, generally speaking. And it was like permission and encouragement for her not to live in an inauthentic way anymore. And she found that to be a real blessing, something she could really appreciate about them. And maybe they also appreciated about them, their life, is that even though so much had been stripped away, there's something beautiful about the simplicity that comes when we're in a crisis or when there are a lot of serious challenges. Life becomes very ringingly clear in a way that when there are all these possibilities, you know, we can we can be really neglectful and and disconnected in a way. 
about what's important. Let me just share a few thoughts before we break into small groups. Uh, in case you're, you don't realize, every other week we do small group work. And uh, what I said last week, you know, for the theme, for the first two weeks, to look at the, uh, I think Sharon Salzberg calls them the allies of mudita. What emotions or mental states support, hang around, reverberate with the state of appreciative joy or empathetic joy, or in the chant it's called, it's translated as gladness. What other emotions are there? And what are the proximate causes? Like how is it that mudita arises? It's a lawful thing. It isn't so much that Mark or anybody just decides, okay, I'm going to have appreciative joy. It's arising as a natural, conditional arising. And we want to understand that how it arises when the causes and conditions are there. And uh, I mentioned three things at the end, I think, of the guided meditation that I'll just bring up that you might want to reflect on now and uh, possibly share when you're in your small group. But just about the, the skill, the importance of the skill of just connecting. Like There's no mudita, there's no appreciative joy or really any beautiful emotion or mind state if the mind or the heart isn't connecting in the moment. In fact, we could say, I think, that all good things arise or all good things depend on a moment of connecting or authenticity or showing up or whatever you want to call that. But the heart-mind has to be connected. It has to be open or raw, undefended. And with appreciative joy, mudita, it's an honest, authentic connection with beauty. It doesn't need to be big, the beauty, or sophisticated. It can be really simple, like seeing somebody with a joy in their heart walk across the room. It can be that simple. Or just, just noticing somebody's satisfaction, somebody's contentment, somebody's simple delight in sitting next to a friend or recognizing a friend across the room. Because all we need to recognize is that this world has real joy in it. That's the, that's the point. That there's beauty, there's joy, there are things to appreciate. We have to remember that because there's a lot of difficulty, obviously. And if we aren't touching joy regularly, not getting our daily dose of joy, then... What's going to creep into the mind is that the appropriate strategy for life is to be tight in order to defend ourselves from what's difficult. But when we realize how beautiful, how much joy there is, then that's not, we don't want to close ourselves off to that. We want to, we want to really let that in. Now, the suffering, the difficulty in life, of course, what does it do? It balances from sort of going right into like opening to joy and then like tripping on it, uh, getting caught up in exuberance and losing ourselves. The, so the, the suffering, the pain, the very real, authentic pain and difficulty in life, it, it keeps grounding us. 
so that even though there is joy and beauty, it isn't something to sort of flip, you know, flip out over. It's just something to let sort of feed or touch or relax the heart. So they, they really work well together to move the mind, the heart toward equanimity, to really allow the beauty in, to really allow the pain and suffering in. And it allows for this transformation of our mind towards equanimity. Equanimity, would, although we normally think of it in terms of being distant, it's not at all about being distant. It's just the opposite. It's a radical sensitivity, but also a radical um, capacity to appreciate, to understand this is how it is. This world has real beauty and it has real suffering. And that's just how it is. And our mind just wants, like, it's a good world, it's a bad world. You know, we just give me an answer. But it's both. It's both incredibly beautiful and alive and free. And at the same time, there are beings right now in this room, let alone around the world and everywhere, that are deeply confused, deeply suffering, in pain, and not knowing what to do with the pain trapped or oppressed by the pain in their lives. So what what is the heart that can hold both? Now, some of us are better at connecting with the suffering and some of us are better at connecting with the joy. And so the key is to learn all four of these emotions so we can have this balance. That's really the direction we're going. So... In Mudita, we're talking, uh, we're recognizing the relevance, the essential relevance of connecting. And through the process of connecting, we begin to recognize this experience of inner abundance. So the upwelling of beautiful energy. Now, we can feel this with compassion or kindness or equanimity and with joy, too. So now we're learning to discover the abundance when the heart is aware of beauty and joy and the success of others, as opposed to envy, which is sort of a, a drawing in, like, oh, what about me? You know, it's like, whoa, that's just great. That is just great. Your happiness makes me happy. Your success makes me happy. I feel enlivened by your success. I feel this arising welling up of good energy as I think about your success, about your well-being, about your happiness. So we're, that's the second part of mudita. It has this upwelling quality to it, this expansion to it. And then the third is just a, a deeper, more sensitive experience of what happiness really is. Understanding that happiness is more about a releasing of constriction than it is about any particular condition. Like I, I've got mint chocolate chip ice cream or I've got all my good friends around me or I am love fall weather, you know. I'm just so happy, this kind of little low dark clouds and then the sun breaks through and the chill in the air and the smell of rotting leaves. and But that... Uh, happiness is really about not needing anything, like the letting go. So when we experience mudita, it's not even so much 
This is like where we find the edge between expanding and then tripping over the joy, exuberance. But we're realizing that recognizing joy, recognizing what's beautiful, what really leads to happiness is the letting go of the heart needing anything. It's like we open to the joy of another person and we discover that the heart doesn't need anything. That's the real freedom. That's real happiness. As a heart, the happiness is independent. But we needed to see the joy to remember that. So that's the third piece. It's like, what are you learning about happiness by doing the mudita practice? Your own happiness now, not the other person's happiness. Because how does it make sense? Like if you do mudita and you feel really happy, how does that make sense? Why would, like the Dalai Lama says, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, mudita increases your odds for happiness six and a half billion to one, right? <laughs> because everybody's happiness can be a cause for our happiness. But why, how does that work? That other people's happiness makes us happy. Because when we connect with the joy of another, we drop the constricted, narrow point of view. We drop conceit. And we realize a happiness. So we're using joy just like we use suffering to drop conceit. It's a skillful means for dropping conceit, going beyond a narrow, self-centered perspective in that moment. So I mentioned every other week we break into groups of three. For those, a few of you are new to the Buddhist studies. We try to take this as a real practice. And so there's a little formality. Please put up with that. It's useful, the formality. And one of the formalities is we take turns. Each person has about three minutes to share, just to speak from your heart about what you've learned about happiness and connecting with the joy and happiness of others, feeling this upwelling, this expansion, this immeasurable feeling like the ability to appreciate others' happiness, understanding your own happiness, how that arises in conjunction with seeing other people's happiness. And just sharing in your small groups about where you found beauty, where you've connected with other people's happiness and success, how that's worked for you, what's gotten in the way, which we'll talk more about next week. So you have two or three minutes to share. If you run out of things to share, just keep reflecting silently for a few seconds. You might find something else to share. So you get all of your time, even if you have nothing to say. And you just... Practice sitting together in the group, all three of you reflecting on the theme of mudita in silence. And then the person whose turn it is, just keep speaking when you have something to say. And just let it be a free offering. And the other people who are listening, you can just stay grounded in the experience of your body sitting. And that will really help you be present. You don't need to make eye contact if you don't want to. You don't need to nod. And you certainly don't and probably shouldn't say anything. You're just in that receptive mode, giving the person their two or three minutes. And then after everybody's had a chance, then for the last five minutes or so, you can just have an informal discussion. That's the time to ask clarifying questions if you have any, or to share something that what they said reminded you of, or anything goes basically at that point. You can even talk about the weather. I mean, it's nice if you stay on theme, but you don't have to. There's There's no right or wrong way to use that last five minutes or so. And it's nice when you first sit down together, sit close, because the closer you sit, 
the less your voices are going to distract the other groups around you. Say your names, even if you think you know everybody's name. Just go around, say your names. Decide in order so you don't have to think about it. And then if you're not in earshot of me, I'll be ringing the bell, then you have to have a timer. Okay? So let's count off. I think we have about 65, let's say 63 people. So 63, that would be 21. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> when? So we'll count by 21s. One, two, three, four, five, six. Anybody sitting, Eva? Good. So 21, you just have two. You can use my office. 20 can use Shelley's office. 19, 18, 16, and 17 in the community room. Uh, 15. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.